Father, we rejoice in the words we've just heard, words that come from you, from the word of Christ, and therefore are true, trustworthy, because your son died in the place of his people, suffering wrath, atoning for our sin, and because you were pleased to raise him from the dead, we one day will likewise be raised from the dead, rescued from our greatest enemy, sin, death, and the devil. Would you give us grace to rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory as we consider Christ's resurrection today? Father, would you awaken hearts? Would you cause scales to fall from eyes? Would you unstop deaf ears as you did our sister Sydney as she told of the resurrection to her co-worker last year? Would you build us up? Would you build up those of us who have believed on Christ? May we wonder anew and be grateful anew at the resurrection of Jesus for our justification. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me add my welcome to that you've already received. Very grateful that you are worshiping the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ with us on this Resurrection Sunday, this Easter Sunday. You may wonder where the women's ensemble is. You'll see that they were to sing in our bulletin, but the sickness that's been going around our women's ensemble was not impervious to, so we're hoping that we can reschedule that and, uh, and hear from them in a few weeks. Nearly four years ago, maybe you remember that 12 soccer players aged 11 to 16, uh, along with their 25-year-old coach, were exploring a cave in northern Thailand when heavy rains flooded the cave and trapped all of them inside. They had no contact with the outside world for nine days while people furiously worked to locate them. And by the time multiple efforts to get them out finally proved successful, the 13 people had been in that cave for more than two weeks. Some of you remember how 24-hour news networks constantly gave updates on the situation. Nearly 12 years ago, 33 copper miners in Chile were trapped for more than two months when the shaft into their copper mine collapsed. I remember being on a mission trip near the end of that ordeal, and each night our team would be glued to the television awaiting news on the status of those Chilean miners and wondering if that night would be the night when they were brought to safety. If you're of a certain age, the phrase, baby Jessica, means something to you. In 1987, 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell 22 feet into an abandoned water well at her aunt's house. She wasn't pulled out for almost three days. If you were alive in the mid-80s, you remember how every national news broadcast kept vigil over baby Jessica until she was brought up. Rescue. Rescue is, without a doubt, one of the most commonly occurring themes in literature and television and movies. Those who rescue become heroes. Those who get rescued write books that become bestsellers. Something about rescue compels us and just kind of captures our attention. And we're emphasizing rescue during our Easter services. It's on our bulletins and our invitations and in our advertisements. But don't simply add the rescue that we're talking about to the list of all the other rescues you can think of. No, the rescue that we're excited about is the rescue to end all rescues. So I wonder this morning, you're here on Easter and you look very nice, I have to say. But have you come seeing yourself as someone who needs rescue? Maybe you arrive here today with money in the bank, gas in the car, 
You better have money in the bank if you're going to have gas in the car. (laughs) And you've got a a refrigerator filled with food. You're employee of the month at work. Those things have nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not you stand in need of rescue this morning. You may well find in listening to God's word that rescue is exactly what you need, whether you feel that way or not. And maybe some of you are clear that you need rescue, but you're confused about what rescue you actually need because you're confused about what your greatest enemy is. That's the tagline to our Easter services, rescue, your greatest enemy defeated. That raises the question, doesn't it? What is your greatest enemy? You need to know if you're going to get rescued from it. And how do you go about getting rescued from your greatest enemy? And why is the rescue that we're talking about so much more important than any other? Well, I'm aiming to answer those questions for you from the scriptures. And to start, go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you or don't have a Bible app on your smartphone, I invite you to use one of the Bibles that we have available to you. You can find the Gospel of John chapter 20 on page 906 in the Bibles that we have in the pews or in some of the chairs in the fellowship hall. The Gospel of John chapter 20. Here's how the Apostle John tells the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. If you have the sermon outline from your bulletin, you'll notice that I've titled this section, this section, The Fact of the Resurrection. And that's exactly what it is, a fact. The evidence against Jesus having died and been raised from the dead three days later has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Any objective Examination of the evidence leads to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth, an itinerant first century Jewish rabbi, died by Roman crucifixion, was buried, and was resurrected three days later. But one piece of the immeasurable evidence for Jesus' resurrection is in the account we find here in John chapter 20. Who comes to the tomb first? It's Mary Magdalene. When the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell of the resurrection, they include the other women who accompanied Mary Magdalene. But here, John lets Mary Magdalene represent the rest of the women who came to Jesus' tomb early Sunday morning. Now, why is it significant that John's resurrection account begins with Mary Magdalene? Because if John or the other gospel writers were making the resurrection up, The first eyewitnesses wouldn't have been women while Jesus' 11 remaining closest followers were cravenly hiding away. As one scholar put it, in the first century, to a Jewish man, a woman's testimony was unreliable. He wrote, quote, Ancient Jewish men did not accept women as reliable witnesses for most legal purposes, end quote. The only reason to tell the story of Jesus' resurrection the way that the story appears in the Gospels is because the Gospel writers are telling of events as they really happened. So as you heard me read, we've got an empty tomb, 
We've got the linen cloths with which Jesus' body had been wrapped after his death on Friday afternoon. If someone had stolen his body and thereby rendered the tomb empty, they wouldn't have unwrapped it first. You want to take what you're trying to steal in a hurry. Here's an empty tomb. Linen cloths left behind. A woman as the first eyewitness to the empty tomb. There's but one logical and reasonable conclusion. Jesus, who was dead, is alive again. But if an empty tomb and left behind grave clothes aren't enough to convince you, let's keep reading. Pick it up at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if, you, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So now, in addition to an empty tomb, left behind grave clothes, we now have someone encountering and having an exchange with the resurrected Lord Jesus. And the someone is Mary Magdalene, again, who a first century Jewish man would never have used as an eyewitness in his story, unless his story was true and he was accurately recounting events as they really happened. And having seen Jesus and having spoken with him and even having clung to him, showing us that he was raised bodily and not as some kind of ghost or phantom, Mary goes and reports to Jesus' disciples that she's seen the Lord, all 11 of whom will have their own encounters with Jesus over the coming days. When I think about the women and the disciples who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and when I think about the altogether unimpressive people they were from the world's perspective, I think of a quote from Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Richard Nixon, and Colson was involved in covering up the Watergate scandal that ended Nixon's presidency. Colson was sentenced to prison for obstruction of justice for his role in Watergate. And not long before he began his sentence, Chuck Colson repented of his sin and placed his faith in Jesus for salvation. And years later, Colson was talking about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and said this, quote, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible, close quote. So to you who come here today with doubts about Christ's resurrection, I urge you to be done with all this silliness that the resurrection of Jesus Christ might or might not have happened. As we confessed earlier in our service, and as Christians have confessed and indeed died for for nearly 2,000 years, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified 
dead and was buried. He descended into hell. That is, his soul went to the place of the righteous dead. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. The third day, he rose again from the dead. All of history has been getting to the weekend in Jerusalem when Jesus died and was raised to life again. And all of history from here to eternity, not just for people and not just for this planet, but for the whole of creation, flows out from what happened on the cross and in Jesus' tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a verifiable, reliable, historical fact, and that changes everything. And it changes everything It changes everything for you. Only to your own eternal peril will you ignore or yawn at someone who died and who was raised again three days later unto eternal life. In our Easter services... Palm Sunday and Good Friday and today, we've been talking about how Jesus brings rescue to his people, rescue from our greatest enemies, rescue from sin, death, and the devil. For Jesus to bring that rescue, though, required his resurrection, the fact of which we've just considered. But notice as well that Jesus' resurrection was absolutely necessary for your rescue. No resurrection, no rescue. Why? Well, first, because God said Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. Where did God say that? Well, all over the Old Testament. I've pulled out just three examples, one from each of the three main sections of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, and the prophets, to demonstrate that the Old Testament is saying practically everywhere that the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 would come and would die and would be raised again three days later for the salvation, for the rescue of his people. One of the places we see Jesus' death and third-day resurrection foretold is in Genesis chapter 22. So would you turn there with me? The very first book of the Bible... The book of Genesis, chapter 22. And again, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've supplied, you'll find Genesis chapter 22 on page 16. Genesis chapter 22. As we arrive here, God has told Abraham to take his son Isaac, the son that God promised to Abraham and his wife Sarah, and to sacrifice Isaac at the top of a mountain called Moriah. And Abraham intends to obey God's command. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I'm going to resist the urge to use the rest of my time to preach that passage, simply to point out, how does this text prophesy of Christ's death and resurrection? Isaac was a type of Christ. Isaac was Abraham's miraculously born son. He was born to an old man and an old woman long past the years of childbearing. And like the one to whom Isaac points, Jesus, he was his father's miraculously born son, wasn't he? Eternally existing as the second person of the Trinity, but Jesus became a man and was born to a virgin girl in Bethlehem. It's on the third day, did you notice that in verse 4? That Abraham and Isaac reached the place where Abraham thinks he's going to kill Isaac and sacrifice, but the angel of the Lord stays Abraham's hand just as he's about to kill his son. Abraham receives Isaac, as it were, back from the dead on the third day. But God did not stay his own hand, did he? When he crushed his son on the cross for sinners, But God did receive his son back from the dead on the third day. Jesus' death and his resurrection are prophesied in the law. They're also prophesied in the writings, among which is the book of Psalms. In our call to worship, we heard a portion of Psalm chapter 16 where King David, who again is a type of Christ as the ruler of God's people, King David writes Psalm 16 and he says in verse 10 that God will not abandon the king's soul, to Sheol, the Hebrew word for the place of the dead, or let God's holy one see corruption. How does this prophesy of Christ's death and resurrection? Well, the New Testament just lays it right out on a platter for us. When the apostle Paul preaches in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, he quotes this very verse. Paul quotes Psalm 16:10 as proof that God raised Jesus from the dead, quote, no more to return to corruption. He whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus' death and resurrection is the fulfillment of the prophecies found throughout the Old Testament in the law, in the writings, and in the prophets. Maybe the best-known Old Testament prophecy concerning Jesus' death and resurrection is found in the book of the prophet Jonah. You remember what happened to Jonah? Have you heard this story? Because of his disobedience toward God and, strangely, because of God's mercy toward Jonah, Jonah is thrown into the sea but is swallowed by a giant fish. And Jonah is in the belly of this great fish for Three days and three nights. That's what Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17 says. Three days and three nights. I feel like I've heard that time span somewhere before. And when that time was complete, Jonah chapter 2 and verse 10 says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Three days Jonah was in a tomb He recalled in Jonah chapter 2 that he cried out to the Lord from the fish's belly as though he were in the belly of Sheol, again, the place of the dead. And on the third day, at the Lord's hand, Jonah emerges from that watery tomb alive. Jesus tells his opponents in the Gospels that they'll receive no sign from him except for the sign of Jonah. Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So by the way, if you believe that the Jonah story is true, you're in company with Jesus, which is good company to be in. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' death, and more to today's point, his resurrection on the third day were necessary because God said through Moses and through King David and through Jonah, among many others, that those things would happen. But Jesus' resurrection isn't isn't necessary only to fulfill Old Testament promises. If Jesus wasn't raised, you, Christian, are of all people most to be pitied. Don't get some sentimental, romantic view 
of the cross and divorce it from the resurrection. If Jesus died on the cross and wasn't raised from the dead, then what happened on the cross is of no account to you. Without the empty tomb, without the empty tomb, the cross for your soul is worthless. If you grew up in church, you might know the hymn, He Lives, He Lives, He Lives, Christ Jesus Lives Today. That hymn was written when its lyricist and composer was getting ready for an Easter Sunday church service and heard a preacher from New York City on the radio say, quote, you know, folks, it doesn't really make any difference to me if Christ be risen or not. As far as I'm concerned, his body could be as dust in some Palestinian tomb. The main thing is his truth goes marching on. That's garbage. If Jesus' body is as dust in some Palestinian tomb, his truth isn't marching on. His truth is worthless. He would be a liar because he said as plain as day to his disciples that he would suffer and die and be resurrected on the third day. And if you're to be saved, Christian, if you're to have your sins forgiven, if you're to be rescued from death and hell and the grave, Jesus must have died on the cross in your place and he must have been raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul put it clearly to the Romans. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Did you hear that? You might hear justification and think cross. And of course, that's true. But again, without the resurrection, Christ's cross work has done you no good. He was raised for our justification. To the Corinthians, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul writes. The empty tomb declares that Jesus is the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. No resurrection, no rescue, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So what does that mean for you, my brother and sister in Christ? Well, as we've been saying the past couple of weeks, Christ's bloody cross and his empty tomb means your rescue. Rescue from the stuff that you really need rescue from. Sin and death and the devil. Rescue with eternal ramifications. And the resurrection offers rescue both now and later. What rescue does the empty tomb guarantee for believers now? Well, to start... The resurrection offers rescue from sin's penalty. Paul says to the Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you listening? The wages of sin is death. Not just death in the sense that your heart ceases to beat and you're embalmed and buried under some big oak tree. No, death, that's the wages of sin, is eternal separation from God, eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire, eternally 
consciously being an object of the triune God's terrifying wrath towards sinners. That's the death that's the wages of sin. The death that, earns, uh, that sin earns as its paycheck at the end of the sinner's life. But for all who've believed, that death has passed over you. As we heard from Pastor Craig last Sunday and Pastor Eric two nights ago on Good Friday. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, had the wages of sin paid to him on the cross. To put it another way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus rescued his people from the just, the fair payment from their sins, the judgment that Jesus himself will inflict as judge on the last day. He rescued his people from that judgment by being declared guilty in their place. Jesus freed his people from the just payment for our sins by satisfying that debt with his own blood. The righteous one dying in the place of the guilty so that the guilty may justly be regarded as righteous. And while the cross is where that transaction took place, where Christ paid in full the sin debt toward God for all of his people, the resurrection tells us that the payment was effective and accepted by the Father. But the resurrection didn't accomplish only our rescue from sin's penalty. Though that's enough worship and praise and gratitude fuel to last about 8 trillion years, Christ's resurrection means the end of sin's slavish power over his people. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you can get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 6. Follow along with me as I read the first four verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see what the apostle says here? All who've been born again... That's what Paul means when he talks about being baptized into Christ. We've been joined to Christ. We've been placed in Christ. Those who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. What death? Christ's death to sin, verse 10 says. So in Christ, we who've believed have also died to sin. And Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too, believer, might walk in newness of life. Hear this good news. Christ died to sin, and so did his people by virtue of being united to him. And he was raised to new life, and so were his people by virtue of being united to him by faith. So Christian, Christ's resurrection from the dead means that you're dead to sin's slave mastery over you. You've been resurrected spiritually to new life. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin is no longer your master. You're not sin's slave anymore. You're now slaves of righteousness and slaves to God, this chapter will go on to say. The sin that once had you by the throat, the addictions and the sinful patterns and behaviors and every other kind of sin... You have resurrection power over those now because God has placed you in his son. And he who the son sets free is free indeed. God has resurrected you to new life with his son. So that now you're able, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, to say a real no to the sins you were once 
totally powerless to resist, and you can say a real yes to obeying the law of Christ to love God by loving God's people. A yes that you weren't able to make good on before Jesus saved you. My brother and sister in Christ, because of the resurrection, you've been saved from sin's penalty. You've been rescued from sin's power. And dear one, the resurrection means your eventual rescue from sin's very presence. When the Apostle John, whose resurrection account we read at the beginning of this sermon, was given a vision of what would take place at Christ's return, here's a portion of what a loud voice from heaven's throne said. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you hear it? Do you hear it, brother, sister? No more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. All the former things have passed away. All the effects of sin will be gone, which means sin will be gone. Sin and all of its hellish accompaniments, every last scent of the curse will be gone. He will have come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. John goes on to say of the city that God's people will dwell in with him eternally. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean. No one who does what is detestable or false, as Peter describes it, a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And as our brother Bruce read from 1 Corinthians 15, will dwell eternally away from sin's presence in bodies like Christ's resurrection body. He was no disembodied spirit. You saw Mary Magdalene. She was clinging to him. At the end of John's gospel, he's eating fish. Ghosts don't eat fish. A real, physical body, brother and sister, bearing no marks of the curse. And I'm excited about a body that can't get sick or age or get hurt or be, or be wounded. But I think I'm more excited about a body with which I'll never sin against my great God and King. A body with a heart that only ever wills what pleases Christ. Hands that only ever serve my brothers and sisters. A mouth that only ever blesses God and his people eternally. And this is almost just about too good to be true. But all of this that I'm describing to you is going to happen face to face with Christ. Do you know that old hymn, When We All Get to Heaven? Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. Just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. But the Bible offers more of a promise than just one glimpse of him in glory, doesn't it? I'll let John tell it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb 
through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the, either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We lost it in Adam in the first garden, didn't we? Christ, by his death and resurrection, wins it back. There's only one who occupies heaven's throne. So you don't have to wonder who the loud voice is from heaven's throne. And he says that he will dwell with them, and they'll be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and they will see his face. Rescue. Rescue from death and hell and the grave. Rescue from sin and death and the devil. Rescue from your greatest enemies, the enemies that you could never, ever, ever conquer. And it's all because Christ was raised from the dead, and it's only because Christ was raised from the dead, and he really was. My application today is simple. You who are not Christians, come to Jesus. Christ's death on the cross, this death that we've been talking about during our Easter services and that we talk about every Sunday and every time our church gathers for practically anything, this death that satisfied the sin debt for sinners just like you. I don't care what sins occupy your list. Listen to me, please, unbelievers, if you haven't heard anything else I've said in this sermon up till now. I don't care what sins occupy your list. Doubtless, you're guilty of sins that you hope you go to your grave with no one knowing. I want to tell you, Jesus' blood can pay for that. You can be forgiven and you can be cleansed, and you can be set free from sin's slavery over you. You can live free from sin's penalty and power, and you can live with hope for the soon coming day when Christ will return and set you eternally free from sin's presence. You can experience all of that, dear unbeliever. But you must be willing to acknowledge that right now, you need mercy. The Gospel of Luke talks about a man who was off to himself, beating on his chest and saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that man went down to his house justified. Will you have that mindset, unbeliever? Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you are right now an object of God's just wrath, and you need to come to the place where you see your desperate need for a Savior. I wonder, unbeliever, do you see that need? Do you sense a desperation to have your sins paid for and forgiven? Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished that for his people. Are you one of his people? You can be. Repent from your sin. Repent from your sinful ways, forsake your sin, and come to Jesus for eternal rescue. Rescue from the things you really need rescue from. Unbeliever, you're going to be resurrected at Christ's return, the Bible says. In the book of Daniel, the Bible says that every person who's dead at Christ's return will be raised. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. And I ask you, which will it be for you? Will you be raised to everlasting life because Jesus died in your place on the cross, suffering the righteous penalty for your sins against the holy God? 
being raised three days later as the first fruits of your resurrection, or, or, unbeliever, will you be raised at the last day to shame and everlasting corruption, contempt, because you foolishly were bored or disinterested or for some other reason rejected the Lord's merciful invitation to you right now by the mouth of this preacher. Come to Jesus. My unbelieving friend, right now, plead with the Lord to have mercy on you and to save you and to forgive your sins and give you eternal life. Plead with him to rescue you from his just and terrible wrath. And to my fellow Christians, I want to say first what Paul says last. At least it's the last thing he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Dear one, in view of the magnificent blessings that belong to the believer now and in view of the glory that awaits at the resurrection of the dead, ask God to give you the grace to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. As we heard a few weeks ago from Hebrews 9, when Jesus returns, he will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So purpose to regularly say with the psalmist, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Rehearse the blessings of salvation. Rehearse the blessings that come to those who by faith in Christ enjoy the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. Eternal life in a resurrection body like Christ's and with Christ. And keep that resurrection hope front and center so that you'll keep pressing on so that by God's grace you'll remain steadfast and immovable, not pulling up before the end and thereby suffering eternally for your sin. And second, dear brother and sister, purpose. Ask God to give you the grace to live with the joy that's the only rational response to the good news I've preached to you on this Resurrection Sunday. If Christ has not been raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. But since he has been raised, we are to be of all people the most joyful and humbly grateful. I know you have hardships in this life. I know you have real hardships. Hardships that I wouldn't be willing to exchange with you for. Hardships related to school and work and, and family and health and money and just busyness and exhaustion. This life is hard. But I like what Don Carson said. You're not suffering from anything a good resurrection can't fix. Dear one, let the scriptures inform your thinking, not your experiences. Christ's return is, from eternity's perspective, just ahead. In fact, Jesus' last word in the scriptures, surely I am coming soon. And when you consider what fullness of joy you'll know in his presence and what pleasures Forevermore you'll know when you see face to face the one who sits at God's right hand. This life's trials, when our heads are screwed on straight, are just blips on the radar. To you believers who come this morning suffering or worrying or in some other way distracted when what you know you want is to be experiencing joy at the truth of Christ's resurrection, the Savior has good news for you. He says to you, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Did you hear the Savior? Fear not. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. 
And that grants him the right to hold the keys of death and Hades. He holds the keys, and when he comes back, he's casting death and Hades into the lake of fire, and his people are going to come out with resurrection bodies to eternally dwell with him face to face. No wonder, he says to you, brother and sister, fear not. You have been rescued from your greatest enemy, sin and death and hell. And the full and final rescue from your last enemy, death, is as certain as the God who promised that he'll bring it to pass when his son returns for his bride, the church. Christ's death and resurrection accomplished your rescue and applied it to your life both now and eternally. Thanks be to God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain and is alive again forevermore. Father, how can we say thank you for your Son's death in our place and his resurrection into eternal life, which is the first fruits of our own resurrection? Raised to newness of life now raised to eternal resurrection life at the end. Father, help us to live steadfastly with that resurrection in mind. Help us to live joyfully and gratefully with that resurrection in mind. As we've been exhorted by our sister Sydney, help us to to spread abroad the news of how others can live with resurrection rescue. And Father, I pray that those who are hearing this gospel, perhaps for the first time or perhaps for the 10,000th time, would hear it anew with ears of faith and would see publicly portrayed to them in the preaching of the word, Christ crucified and raised so that they may may be rescued, so that they may believe. We pray it in the name of our resurrected Savior. Amen.